once a year the children of Israel would gather together uh, throughout their history. Uh, they had been given a command by God to get together and celebrate. As they gathered, especially in Jerusalem, uh, for this festival, uh, they would go through the streets of the old city and uh, they would pick up their different wares. They would go to the temple and the congregation of God's people would gather together in the in the courts of the temple, and they would stand in anticipation, awaiting the sound. It was a sound that was startling. It was a sound that was a call to begin. It was a sound that the people heard, and when they heard the sound, Something sparked in their memory, a collective memory of a community who had been uh, told by their parents and their grandparents and their great-grandparents of how God had moved in the lives of Israel. They stood in anticipation, waiting for this sound. When the shofar was blown, worship began. The shofar was an instrument that was used in the battle against Jericho. You remember that battle? A battle where the children of Israel, finally entering the promised land, began to walk around the city, not with weapons of war, but with faith in God and praise on their lips, blowing the shofar, announcing that the time had come for God to bring the victory. It was an instrument that was used when Gideon went into battle with his faithful few men against a horde that had come to maraud and pillage and defeat God's people. And when the sound of the shofar began, they knew that God had brought the victory. Now, as the psalmist in Psalm 81 began to teach the people of God, gathered in the temple, they had been celebrating. They'd been celebrating the festival of booths. The festival of booths was something that followed after the Day of Atonement and the Passover. The Passover celebration, if you remember, was what the children of Israel did together as the people of God to celebrate the fact that God had brought deliverance to their firstborn and yet judgment to the firstborn of all who opposed him in Egypt. And it was that great Passover that led to the children of Israel being released by Pharaoh from their bondage. As they celebrated the festival of booths, it, it followed along their, their trek through the wilderness toward the promised land. The festival of booths was a time of great celebration that came in the fall of the year, much like where we are today. 
And as they celebrated, they were celebrating God's provision in between. They were celebrating God's provision in between the rescue from bondage, the deliverance at the Red Sea, the giving of the law at Mount Sinai, but they still had to travel through the wilderness to get to the promised land. They weren't where they used to be in bondage, but they weren't where they wanted to be in the promised land. And yet, step by step in between their freedom and the fulfillment of the promise, they lived in booths, tents. And the festival of booths celebrated God's provision all the while remembering the hostility of that barren land. The dryness, the desert, the heat, the work. In the in-between, life can get hard. But Psalm 81 awakens the church today to the reality that God has a pathway, even in the most difficult days, for the church, His people, to be satisfied. If you have your Bibles, turn to Psalm 81. Psalm 81 is a story of celebration, but then it's also a story where God begins to speak directly to his people. Beginning in verse 6, verses 1 through 5 is, is the call to worship, the call to celebrate, the call to rejoice, the sounding of the ram's horn. But beginning with verse 6, God begins to speak to his people. He begins to speak to you and me here today. And just as he reminded the children of Israel through Psalm 81, just as he reminded them back then of how they could find a satisfied life as the people of God living in between, not where they used to be in bondage, but not yet in heaven where they wanted to be. In the same way, Psalm 81, God speaks to us, the church how that you and I, as the people of God, God called First Baptist Church Norfolk, can find satisfaction, contentment, fulfillment in our everyday life. Can I just share with you just for a second? First Baptist Church Norfolk, there is a pathway for you to be satisfied, for us to be satisfied. And it's not found in the things that we fight so hard to acquire on our own. God's pathway to satisfaction is different than perhaps your pathway or mine. And yet God's pathway to satisfaction is the single pathway for our church to live in between, between here and heaven with satisfaction. Friends, our church needs to be satisfied, but satisfied in the right way, satisfied in God's way. If you're here today and you are dissatisfied with the church, this message is for you. 
If you're here today and you're living in the dissatisfaction of everyday life, this message is for you. God gives us a pathway to be satisfied. The theme of Psalm 81 is rendered differently by different people, but the, 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 the crux of the matter is simply this, that God has listened to his people and they want results. He's listened to them and, and they've cried out in desperation. They've cried out in their own lack. They've cried out because they don't like where they are and they're crying out to God for results. But Psalm 81 gives God's side of the story. Perhaps you're here today and you've been crying out to God because you don't like the lot that you have. Perhaps you've been crying out to God because you don't like what's happened in your church. You've been crying out to God because you don't appreciate how uh, the culture has left you by. You, you, you've been crying out to God because you need help or you're in despair. And then you begin to hear what God says. This is God's side of the story. And what he says to us today will shape the future and the quality of life that we have as a church for the days ahead. The question is, will you listen? As we look at Psalm 81, and as I've already shared, the psalmist begins by speaking in verses 1 through 5. The psalmist is calling upon the people of God to rejoice, to praise God in joyful worship. Again, listen to the language beginning in verse 1. He says, sing aloud to God who is our strength. Make a joyful shout to the God of Jacob. Raise a song, strike the timbrel, the pleasant harp with the lute. Blow the trumpet at the time of the new moon. This is the trumpet, the ram's horn. Blow the trumpet at the time of the new moon, at the full moon on a solemn feast or festival day. For this is a statute for Israel, a law of the God of Jacob. This he established in Joseph as a testimony when he went throughout the land of Egypt, where I heard a language I did not understand. God begins to speak in verse 6, but let's take a moment and consider what is God's pathway for a satisfied church. And the first thing we see in verses 1 through 5, the pathway for a satisfied church is to praise God in joyful worship. To praise Him. To sing songs of praise to Him. Now, there is no way for me to adequately describe the exuberance that is portrayed in verses 1 through 3. As you look at your copy of Scripture, you see, sing a song, raise a shout, blow a trumpet, strike the timbrel. You see these words and they perhaps lack significance for you. Isn't that what we do? But what we're missing is the 
the, the meaning behind those words. To sing a song is to, is to do more than just uh, sing a little melody and, 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 and try, to, try to make our notes sound okay. To, to, to sing a song to the God who is our strength is, is, is more than just, just reciting words on a screen or on a page. To sing a song to the God who is our strength is to be so filled with an appreciation for who God is that we give this ringing cry of praise and victory. It is loud. It is filled with a cacophony of praise. It's not a silent moment. Certainly we have those silent moments in Scripture, but this is not one of them. The psalmist says we need to be loud and we need to be proud of the God who has rescued us. We need to praise Him. To strike the tremble, timbrel, is really a tambourine. And it's not really like the tambourine that we know. The tambourine is, is uh, uh, that, that little thing with little jingle bells around it, right? That's a tambourine. But, but, but the timbrel, the tambourine in Old Testament times was more of a drum and less of a clanging cymbal. It, it's a handheld instrument that, that, that the women carried uh, when they welcomed David and Saul in the streets uh, and they praised God for the victories that God had given David and Saul. They, they, they shouted a little bit louder for Saul, but they were dancing in the streets, striking their drums. It's an instrument for the dance. And not just a, a passive spectatorship in worship, but rather an active participation in who God is and what He's done. And if you are here and you are one who has been brought into friendship with God through faith in Jesus Christ, then He has planted that joyful praise in your heart and in mine. And we must express it today. When <laughs> Okay, yeah, it's 8 o'clock and y'all have already had your coffee already. It's, it's not just drumming up our emotions, but it does include our emotions. It includes emotions of thanksgiving, of gratitude to a holy God who has determined to rescue us. A holy God who is determined by His sovereign power and grace to bring us into a friendship with Himself. And by the way, verses 4 and 5 tell us that this isn't just some optional thing for the community of believers. But it is a statute. It is a law. It is something that God has established for His people. Now, we as the church, we don't have these different festivals that they had in the Old Testament times. For we know that the, the feasts were merely a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ, who is the fulfillment of all things in the Old Testament. We are a people who every day live in the 
concert of praise to a God who has given us Jesus, who has forgiven our sin, who has given us a living hope, who has brought us into the kingdom of God. And friends, as a church, if we can't praise God, then we will never be satisfied. Today, if we're going to be a satisfied church, we need to praise God in joyful worship. I, 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 can't, I, can't, uh, I, I can't describe adequately how that joy should drive our worship. You might say, well, Eric, you don't understand the lot that I'm living in. Oh, friend, understand, I've lived in many lots like you're living in. And I'm not saying that I've arrived. I'm not even saying that I can do it perfectly. But here's what I know. God doesn't lie. And if I'm going to be satisfied in the church, it's because I am joyfully praising God, lifting up my voice with a community of believers who have a friendship with God and who are part of the family of God. When we gather together, instead of focusing on notes and on pages, we should focus on the God who has saved us. And praise Him. Instead of taking tally of what kind of songs we sing, we should sing with all our hearts praise to the God who has saved us. A satisfied church is a church that joyfully praises God. He is the object of our praise. The psalmist begins... And he blows the trumpet, and the people begin to praise. And it is loud, and it is joyful. It's not chaotic. It is just a celebration. As I mentioned yesterday, Tennessee beat Florida. What makes that so significant? I'll get to a point. What makes that so significant is that for the last 11 years, Tennessee has lost to Florida. 11 straight years. Heartbreak after heartbreak, especially the last two years. We've lost to the people of the swamp. (laughs) And yesterday, it looked as if we were going to lose again. Yesterday, the beginning of the game, a penalty, then a big throw, 7-0. Our offense stalled. Oh, wait, I won't go through all that. But the reality is 21 to nothing. Finally got a field goal at the end of the half, and all of Tennessee Nation was saying to ourselves, here we go again. We're not going to win. But then things turned around in the second half. And the team began to play. And they brought home the victory. I don't know if you saw the end of the game. And if you don't care about it like I and others do, then you didn't. But I've been in that stadium 
And I've heard those people sing. And I've watched the joy on their faces when the victory has come. A hundred thousand plus voices celebrating a victory that was almost out of their reach. Friends, if they can do it in Neyland Stadium, we can certainly do it here. Where they're just celebrating a silly football team. We're celebrating the God of the universe. How can we keep silent? If we're going to be satisfied, we need to have our focus on God who is our strength, and we need to praise Him with exuberant joy, with passion and with fervency. And maybe one of the reasons why you're having such a hard time praising God when we gather to worship, and I share this from personal experience, is because your focus is wrong. Your focus is on things and stuff rather than on the God who gave us the things and the stuff. Your focus is on the heat or the cold, the lack or the rain, instead of the God who can turn on the faucets of heaven and end a drought. The God who can push away the ocean and give us dry land. When we focus our hearts on the God of the universe, not just some distant deity, but the God who sovereignly purposed to bring us into his family and bring us into this family called First Norfolk who has defeated every foe, then we can't but help praise Him with joy. Now, those are the first five verses, but the psalmist is interrupted by God in verse 6. And this is really a unique feature in this psalm. You have five verses where a, a worship leader is leading the people, but in the midst of the worship, God begins to speak. And as God begins to speak, he tells us what we must experience, what we must know, what we must do as a church, as his people, to be satisfied. Not only must we praise God in joyful worship, but we also must remember his rescuing love through Jesus. I want you to look at verses 6 and 7. The psalmist is writing, but God is speaking. God says, I removed his shoulder from the burden. His hands were freed from the baskets. You called in trouble, and I delivered you. I answered you in the secret place of thunder. I tested you at the waters of Meribah. As we break that down, simple. God rescued his people. And this is calling their memory back to their bondage in Egypt with baskets and burdens and hands. We, we see the practical, tangible evidence of their own slavery to Pharaoh. 
And God, with a great call of, 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 of his own glory, says, that's who you were, but that's not who you are. He says, hey, listen, I heard your cries and I answered you. I heard your plea for help and I responded by delivering you. I fought the Red Sea in a mighty thunder and I moved it from its path. I broke the burdens that were weighing you down. I shattered the stock around your neck. God says, I have rescued you. He's reminding the children of Israel, hey, listen, I've done great things for you. That's who I am. You're no longer slaves in Egypt. Now you're set free. That's who you are. As a church of the Lord Jesus Christ called First Norfolk, we are satisfied when we constantly remember God's rescuing work. How that He has rescued us. How that we were slaves to our own sin, held in bondage, not by a wicked Pharaoh, but by Satan himself. We were slaves to sin and Satan, and God sent Jesus to set us free. Jesus came with a thunderclap in the quiet night in Bethlehem, and he broke all the rules when God became man, flesh and bone to dwell among us so that we might see the glory of God, so that we might know the mercies of God, so that we might feel the heart of God. And Jesus, who went to a cross to shatter the sin that controlled and dominated our lives, Jesus took the sin upon himself and killed it with his own death. Jesus took our place on a cross so that we might be set free. When this is the bedrock of our collective memory as the body of believers called First Norfolk, then we have great confidence and satisfaction. Not in what we do, but in what God has already done on our behalf. The bedrock of our satisfied life as a church is the good news that we, sinners though we have been and though we may be, have been rescued from sin and Satan to have life through faith in Jesus Christ. That we, the people of God, are truly the people of God, dwelling in the presence of God, basking in friendship with God. We are the people who can truly say, God, our Father, because of his rescuing love. God indeed has removed the burden from us. But are we living as those who have been set free? There's one more phrase at the end of verse 7. He says, And I tested you at the waters of Meribah. 
Now it becomes real for us. You see, the waters of Meribah, the waters of contention. It's a reference of ex, uh, to, uh, to Exodus 15 through 17. The children of Israel who have been set free from bondage began to complain because they didn't have enough water. Have you ever complained when things get tough? Have you ever complained when you didn't like what was happening? In the church, this is common fodder. The reason I know is because I regularly get the complaints. The reason I know is because sometimes I give them myself. But do you see what God says in verse 7? He says, not that the children of Israel tested God. That's what Exodus 15 through 17 says. Exodus 15 through 17 says that, that the people tested God because they wanted water. And so God, in the midst of their rebellion and in the midst of their complaint, he brought water from a rock. To satiate their thirsts. But in the psalm here, he says, not that the people tested God, but that God was testing the people. You know what God is testing? God's testing your faith and your faithfulness. When you go through the heat and the drought and the difficulty, when you encounter things that you don't really like, make no mistake, it's not you complaining to God, it's God testing you. Are you faithful to Him? Even in the midst of things that you don't like, the things that you don't want to endure, are you faithful to God? Are you trusting Him? Are you confident in His provision and His care even when you don't understand some of the things that are happening to you? See, God is looking for a people who are responsive to Him. God is looking for a people who are obedient to Him. As we remember God's rescuing love through Jesus Christ, we need to remember that God is testing us as well. He's testing our faithfulness. He's testing our faith. Now, why would He do that? To make us stronger as His followers. To make us more joyful as His people. If we're going to be satisfied as a church, we need to praise God in joyful worship. We need to remember God's rescuing love through Jesus. And number three, we need to listen to God alone. I want you to look at verses 8 through 12. These are important verses. God really gets to the crux of it. He says, hear or listen, O my people, and I will admonish you. O Israel, if you will only listen to me, there shall be no foreign God among you, nor shall you worship any foreign God. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide, and I will fill it. But my people would not listen to my voice, and Israel would have none of me. So I gave them over to their 
own stubborn heart to walk in their own counsels. I, 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 I want you to just kind of think about your own life as a follower of Jesus and as a member of First Baptist Norfolk. You see, the truth is there are a lot of voices that we listen to. Verse 12 contends that the primary voice that leads us into rebellion is our own stubborn heart. There are a lot of voices that we can listen to. But there is only one voice that we must listen to. And that is the voice of God alone. Do you hear the urgency of a holy God pleading with his people, oh, that Israel would listen to me. Oh, that you, oh, that I, oh, that we would listen to God and God alone. He says, listen, I'm going to admonish you. I'm going to admonish you because you're listening to the wrong voices. He says, I am the Lord your God. I am the one who brought you out of the land of Egypt. If you'll open wide your mouth, I will fill it. I'll satisfy you. But instead, we open wide our mouths to other faucets. Trying to satisfy our soul with sweet meats that aren't from him. This is why our life in church becomes so draining, so dismal, so filled with a lack of contentment and a lack of satisfaction. It's not because of the preacher. It's not because of the songs. It's not because of the life groups. Ultimately, it's because we are not listening to God alone. We're looking to some other source to satisfy our soul. We're opening wide our mouth to the other voices that they might satisfy us. It gets real simple, by the way, and as a follower of Jesus, I want you to get this because it's real simple. When we listen to God, He satisfies. But if we don't listen to God, we invite trouble, trauma, even death into our soul. When we listen to God, we're saying, God, I need you. I want you. I, I, I can't live without you. When we don't listen to God, we're saying to God, I don't want to have any part of you. God is looking for us to be a responsive people. And what leads us to satisfaction as a church, as a follower of Jesus, it's that we listen to God alone. What voice are you listening to right now? I pray it's the voice of God. As God continues to speak, he says, 
All right? Here's what you need to do. You want to be satisfied as a follower of Jesus. You want to be satisfied as a church. You need to praise God in joyful worship. You need to remember God's rescuing love through Jesus. You need to listen to me alone. And then thirdly, he says, we need to return to God as our soul's source of satisfaction. Beginning in verse 13, the psalmist writes, And God says, Oh, that my people would listen to me. Oh, that Israel would walk in my ways. I would soon subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their adversaries. You see what God promises there? He promises this to you and me. If we return to him as our soul's source for satisfaction, then he promises to pave the way for us. He promises to take every obstacle and turn it into an opportunity for us to be satisfied in Him. When we look to God as our soul's source of satisfaction, He subdues the enemies and the adversaries and the opponents to Him and to His people. It's a call for us to return to Him to repent our sin of listening to the wrong voices. It's a call to return to Him with a promise. I'll subdue the enemies. My hand will turn them back. Verse 15, he says, But the haters of God, they're only going to pretend submission. Now's not the time to put on pretense. A church will never be satisfied with a group of people who are only pretending submission to God. God will not God will not allow us to just go through religious acts to engage in religious ceremonies while our hearts are far from Him. By the way, He doesn't say you're just, you, you're just rebellious. He says you're a hater of God. When we pretend like we're submitting to God, all the while our heart is far from God, we're demonstrating not only that we don't want any part of God, but that we actually hate Him. We despise Him. Now's not the time to pretend like God's your sole source of satisfaction. Now is the time to give him all that you are. Verse 16 really concludes the promise. God says, He would have fed them also with the finest of wheat, and with honey from the rock I would have satisfied you. You remember the rock that brought forth the water in the wilderness. What God says here is that if you return to Him as your soul's source of satisfaction, returning to Him, listening to His voice, walking in His way, living in obedience to Him in every arena of our lives, if we will do that, then God promises not to bring water from a rock, but to bring honey from a rock. 
symbolically to satisfy us completely. To overwhelm everything that would rob us of fulfillment and fill us with himself. God's pathway to a satisfied church will only happen when his people return to him. Only happen when we commit all our heart to him. It will only happen in your life individually and our life corporately when we don't pretend submission, but actually submit. So here's my question. Won't you listen to God? Aren't you tired of being dissatisfied? Won't you listen to God and walk in His ways? Remember what He's done for you through Jesus. He's poured His Spirit within you that you might live in power and in life. Don't stiff arm His presence by walking in your own ways according to your own stubborn heart. But return to Him. And he will feed you. He will fill you with contentment and fulfillment and satisfaction. He will satisfy First Norfolk. So friends, I'm asking you to listen to God. And to follow his pathway for a satisfied life and a satisfied church. I pray that there not be one among us who fails to return to God as our soul's source for satisfaction. I pray that there not be one of us who would open wide our mouths to be filled with lesser things. But that we would open our life, our heart, our mind, our soul to the living God and be satisfied. Would you bow your heads, please? The trumpet has blown, and now is the time. Now is the time for us to praise God with joy. Now is the time for us to remember all that God has done for us in Jesus. How that He suffered and bled and died so that we might live through faith in Him. Now is the time for you and for me to listen to God alone and to look to Him to satisfy our soul. If life is hard, friends, I understand. But you and I 
must understand that God's desire is to bless us even in difficult days, to satisfy us even in our own wilderness wandering. Today, will you respond to what God is leading you to do? To come to this altar and to worship Him. To come to this altar and return to Him. To come to this altar and listen to Him. Come and talk to one of our ministers. Ask them to pray for you, to answer questions that you might have. Will you remember what Jesus has done for you? And will you respond in worship and obedience to Him? True worship begins with obedience to the God who sent Jesus to rescue us. So now, Father, as we respond to You in this moment, as we come to this altar and as we ask for prayer, as we focus our hearts upon You, Lord Jesus, and what You have done for me and for us, May you satisfy us as a church. And it's in the matchless name of Jesus we pray. Amen.